Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 3. But I actually want to begin our time by reading a passage we covered just a couple weeks ago. The passage is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 13. In it, the Apostle Paul says this. Referring to the message of the cross, he says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I don't know if you caught that. Let me read this to you one more time. Verse 10, he says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you have any idea the significance of what Paul is saying right there. You know, I think we read passages like this one all the time without taking the time to really think about what they're saying. Maybe you get up in the morning, you get your coffee, you curl up on your couch to do your morning devotions, and you pull out your little reading plan checklist, and there it says something like, Wednesday, February 19th, 1 Corinthians 1-3. through And so you open up your Bible... And in the span of the next 10 minutes or so, maybe 15, if your mind is drifting, you sort of nonchalantly read those three chapters while you sip your coffee, practically skimming over passages like this one without hardly giving them a second thought. Or even if you do take the time to really process what these passages are saying, even still over time they become familiar. And as they become familiar, they become more and more unremarkable. It's all stuff you've heard before. You know what the passage says. You could probably teach a Sunday school class on it if someone asked you. And so, because it's something you're familiar with, because it's something you can fit your arms around, so to speak, something you can explain, you cease to be impressed by it. It happens to all of us. I'm just as guilty of it as anyone else. It's almost like if if I can explain something, then it's not really that remarkable anymore. It's only the new information that really wows me. Now listen, that's not how this should work. You can know something and understand something and it still be remarkable. So let me break down what I just read to you. So you know God, right? You know, the the almighty, infinite creator of literally everything. The one who can literally do anything. The one who exists beyond time and space, who is in a sense in all places and all times from here to the very edges of the universe he created. The one who has seen the surfaces of planets that we don't know exists yet, and inside of stars that no human instrument can enter. The one who can see into the hearts of men, and who can look both forwards and backwards into time, not only witnessing what has happened, but knowing what will happen before it comes to pass. The one who not only knows all things, but in whom there is no error, no flaw in his character to distort his thinking, no weakness in his person to produce some kind of miscalculation, both perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom combined in one omniscient being. 
Well, in the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul just said that the church has been supplied with the Spirit who understands and knows the thoughts of God so that we can understand the things freely given to us by God. Do you understand that? (laughs) This means that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you too possess the very Spirit of God so that God can impart what He knows to you. And that, my friends, is utterly remarkable. I tell you, there are many things that Christians take for granted about their faith, but I wonder if there is anything that they take for granted so much as the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, of course, is God Himself. God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when Jesus prepared to depart on the eve of His death, He told His disciples, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He says he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And he says that the Spirit will dwell not just with, but in his disciples. This is a gift so significant that Jesus says that there's a sense in which it's superior even to the presence of Jesus himself. John 16, verses 7 through 11, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because you do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So, What's the big deal here? What's so remarkable about this coming spirit? Jesus explains, verse 12, again, John 16. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus says he's going to teach you things that you're not ready to receive yet. Basically, there are some things that Jesus wants to disclose to the disciples, but the problem is that their heart isn't ready for it just yet. But after the Spirit comes and indwells his disciples and convicts them concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and makes them able to perceive the truth of Jesus Christ, he will then be able to disclose these things to them And they will receive it. This is actually the exact thing that Paul is talking about over in that passage from 1 Corinthians uh, 2 I read just a moment ago. Uh, I've explained this over the past several weeks. When Paul says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Paul isn't talking about how believers uh, generally... There, when he's not talking about believers generally, there when he says we, uh, rather he's referring to Paul and his companions, Paul and the apostles specifically. He's referring to this same additional revelation that Jesus is promising there in John 16. And regarding this revelation, he says, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Essentially, these truths are disclosed to those who, by virtue of the fact that they have the Spirit of God, are able to receive them. It's the same thing that you see going on in John 16. Additional revelation being disclosed to those who, because of the internal work performed by the Spirit, are able to receive it. It would seem that a person can't receive this revelation until they accept the identity of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul indicates earlier in this same passage, when he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
You can know that the rulers of this age aren't going to receive this additional wisdom that Paul has to offer because of what they've done with Jesus. They, Jesus, they've rejected Christ, so they're going to reject the wisdom that comes from Christ through the Holy Spirit. Going back to John 16, this is partly why the disciples aren't yet ready to receive the wisdom the Spirit has to disclose to them. They don't yet fully comprehend who Jesus is. That much is made apparent, right? When, when Philip asked Jesus to show them the Father. So they don't yet understand completely who Jesus is. However, that is going to change after his resurrection, after they step into the empty tomb, after he discloses himself to them. And this is what the Spirit tells us, the truth of Jesus Christ, which enables the Christian to receive this further revelation from God. Again, this is really just a remarkable gift. Jesus is promising the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit of God, to prepare the hearts of His people to receive this further revelation that He can't provide to them just yet due to their spiritual immaturity. And I think this is an important distinction to make, by the way. There's a lot of confusion out there about what this means to be taught by the Spirit. And if you want to understand uh, what this means, you should know that it does entail the idea of additional revelation in the passage that Paul is talking about here, 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, but that is not the primary role that the Spirit plays in the lives of the average Christian. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that Christ has given the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the idea is that not only do you have church leaders as opposed to the rest of the body of Christ, each performing their own role, but even among church leaders, there are distinctions to be made. Uh, a pastor, for instance, is different than an apostle or prophet. Uh, additional revelation is going to be disclosed to the apostle or the prophet. For the rest of us, though, the role the Spirit has to play is to convict us that what the apostles and the prophets tell us is true. Now, do you know why Jesus is sending this Spirit? Do you know why He's giving the church this tremendous gift. It's all over throughout that section of John, but it's stated perhaps most succinctly at the end of that exchange with the disciples. Jesus says, John 16, 32 through 33, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is why Jesus sends the Spirit. It's not simply so that He can impress us with miracles or give us a special feeling in the pit of our stomach. No, He sends the Spirit to guide His people through the trial and tribulation that's sure to follow them after His crucifixion. This is why Jesus is troubled in his spirit after washing the disciples' feet in John 13. It's why he goes on to pray uh, uh, the high priestly prayer of John 17. That's the main focus of his prayer there. Jesus understands that after he's gone, all the rejection and even the hatred that he was about to experience at the cross, it's all going to be directed towards them, towards his disciples. The world isn't going to have Jesus to kick around anymore. And so it's going to focus its attention on the next best thing, and that's Jesus' disciples. As Jesus says in John 15, 18 through 21, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The reason why I'm taking the time to tell you all this is because the title of our series here in 1 Corinthians is Christ in the World. And the purpose of this series is to help equip you to apply your faith in Christ. It's to help you understand how the realities of the next life shape your life here, this side of heaven, in this world. This is not a way of life that's going to be accepted by the world. As Paul says, this is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. In fact, not only is this not a wisdom that you're going to see advanced by the power structures of our society, but they're actually opposed to it. They're going to be pushing you in the other direction. And what I want you to understand is that 
you have at your disposal an immensely valuable resource, a helper who can help you navigate these pressures and live according to the wisdom of God. And again, you really can't overstate the significance of this gift. I mean, you think of King Solomon, for instance, and the supernatural wisdom that he was given by God to help him rule the people of Israel. And I think the argument can be made that you have been given essentially that and more. It's a gift so significant, again, that Jesus actually sought to comfort his disciples by telling them it was better for him to go than to stay so they could receive it. And I want you to understand this so that what you're willing to do what is necessary, so that you're willing to do what is necessary to access this gift. You see, this is not a gift that comes without conditions. Yes, God does save the believer unconditionally, meaning the Christian receives the Spirit without any conditions. There's nothing that he or she must do to earn him. Jesus even exhorts the disciples, all a person must do to receive the Spirit is ask. And yet the Scripture also tells us that how we ask still matters. I immediately think of James 1, for instance, where Speaking of wisdom and and wisdom in the midst of trials, even James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double minded man, unstable in all his ways. James says God gives freely, but only on the condition that you ask in faith, without doubting. And in context, he means without double-mindedness. A person can have one eye on God, asking him to give them wisdom, and then another in the world. And if they, and if they hope to, to receive the wisdom of God, they can't expect to receive it, since that desire for the world is going to distort and corrupt the instruction that God has to offer. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 21 when he tells the disciples after cursing a fig tree, verses 21 and 22, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only be able to do what is done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Faith, once again, is the condition to receiving the blessing of God. A person can ask in prayer, but if they don't ask in the right way, in faith, then they can't expect to be heard. Well, friends, it works the same way with the wisdom taught by the Spirit. We saw it just a moment ago. Jesus told the disciples that there was more he had to tell them, but they weren't ready for it yet. It was only after he was raised from the dead that he would tell them and what he had to say would make sense. Paul says the same thing with reference to the rulers of the world in 1 Corinthians 2. He says the wisdom he has to offer, which is given by the Spirit, is not understood by the rulers of the world, since if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Faith in Christ, an acknowledgement of the supremacy of Christ, is a prerequisite to receiving the wisdom of God. When Paul writes this morning's passage, He informs the Corinthians that they're missing one of these prerequisites. Specifically, they're lacking the sort of mindset that will enable them to receive the wisdom of God. This is even what he meant back in chapter 2 when he said, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. The Corinthians think Paul's teaching foolish, unsophisticated. Throughout most of chapter 1, Paul answers by saying, On the one hand, guilty is charged. There's a sense in which it is foolish because God intends to save by power through a foolish message in order to shame the wisdom of the world. But then as he gets to chapter 2, he says, Yet on the other hand, we do impart wisdom, but the problem is that I couldn't share it with you because you were not yet ready to receive it. Towards the end of chapter 2, Paul makes this comparison between the natural person and the spiritual person. He says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, but they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. At the beginning of chapter 3, he says that he couldn't address the Corinthians in this way because although they possessed the Spirit of God, they were still acting as if they did not have the Spirit. 
They were acting as if they were a merely human church. This is why they were having trouble receiving the wisdom he had to offer them. And, and that's significant, by the way, because that's exactly what Paul is trying to offer them in this letter. Remember, they've written to Paul with several practical questions about how to apply their faith in Christ. Paul is going to answer these, but first he has to warn them, you're not going to receive any of this unless you first change your way of thinking and stop acting like a natural man and begin instead to think and act like the spiritual people you are. So what was the indicator to Paul that they were not yet ready to receive this wisdom from the Spirit of God? It was their jealousy. It was their rivalries with one another. He says, verses 1-4, through 4, chapter 3, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. And even now you're, you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What is it about rivalry or jealousy in the church that indicates that a body is thinking in a merely human way? What does this attitude, why does it make it so that a body of believers is unable to receive the wisdom of the Spirit of God. Let's go ahead and read the rest of this passage and find out. Let's see why Paul would say, I know you weren't ready because you were acting this way. The Apostle Paul continues, starting in verse 5, continuing through the end of the chapter. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be, be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Over the past several weeks, I've said that in this chapter, Paul provides us with four reasons why competitiveness in the body of Christ indicates a merely human way of thinking. Starting last week, I also said that these can be read as reasons why a competitive spirit also produces a merely human way of thinking. Because it really works both ways. It can function both as the cause and the effect. A church descends into competitiveness when it's functioning according to the wisdom of the world. However, it also becomes worldly in its thinking when it allows itself to adopt an attitude of competitiveness. And that really seems to be more of Paul's emphasis by this point in the chapter. He's talking less about how this competitive spirit reflects a worldly way of thinking and more of how it will produce a worldly way of thinking. The first reason we looked at a few weeks back, and that's because a competitive spirit forgets who builds the church. Basically, a competitive spirit is merely human in the sense that it acts as if man builds the church 
not God. The second reason we looked at last week, and that's because the competitive spirit forgets on whom the church is built. So it forgets who builds a church and it forgets on whom the church is built. Essentially, what the competitive Christian forgets is that we're all built on the same foundation. Basically, we're one structure. We're all on the same team. You combine these first two reasons, this failure to forget, uh, uh, to remember, this failure to remember who builds the church, and this failure to remember on whom the church is built, and it means that the competitive church will often fall into worldly thinking as teachers emerge in the body who will try to distinguish themselves or who will try to distinguish one camp within the church over against another by advancing techniques or philosophical systems which are not rooted in Christian doctrine. I mentioned last week that this is what Paul means when he warns about building with subpar materials, materials, he recognizes that these rivalries are going to cause leaders to be tempted to build with something other than Christian doctrine to distinguish themselves. And he's warning them, if you do this, it isn't going to gain you anything. You'll get to judgment day and Christ is going to reject your work. You won't gain any reward for this labor. So this works both ways. The rivalries indicate a worldly way of thinking and they also predict a worldly way of thinking. This morning, we're going to continue with the next two reasons why a competitive spirit both indicates and predicts a merely human church. And reason number three is this. A competitive spirit, again, both indicates and predicts a merely human church because a competitive spirit forgets to whom the church belongs. Again, A competitive spirit forgets to whom the church belongs. If you haven't noticed already, there's a couple of themes developing in each of these reasons. The one theme is captured with this word, who. The competitive Christian forgets who builds the church. It forgets on whom the church is built and to whom it belongs. The second theme is this notion of building or structure. The church is a building built by God and for God and on the foundation of Jesus Christ. This is an image that Paul picks up at the end of verse 9. He notes, you are God's field, God's building, and then he carries this image all the way through verses 10 through 15 as he talks about the, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Finally, he then continues it here, saying in Verse, uh, verses 16 and 17, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroy God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So it's a theme that Paul continues through most of this chapter. One of the themes that really fascinates me in the Bible is this idea of the dwelling place of God. You probably already know this, that I'm fascinated by this subject, just by how often I bring it up, but it's really one of the major themes in the Scripture. And I think it's an incredibly neglected topic by most Christians. I doubt even still that you think about this very often, about the dwelling place of God, but it's really one of the major concerns of the Bible. I mean, just take the beginning and the end of the book, right? I mean, that's usually a good way to figure out what a book is about. You read the introduction and you read the conclusion. Where does it begin and where does it end? That usually tells you the movement of the book, uh, uh, the, the conflict that it's resolving. And where does the Bible begin? It begins with man being evicted from the presence of God. And it ends with God descending from heaven to dwell with man once again. That city that God dwells in, by the way, when he descends... That's called the New Jerusalem. Jerusalem, we learn in places like Ezekiel 16, was chosen as a special place of God's dwelling even before God called Abram to dwell in the land of Canaan. Shortly after the flood, Noah blesses his son Shem by saying that God will one day dwell in the tents of his people. That's a promise that first begins to come to pass with the building of the tabernacle and then later with the construction of the temple. This is an idea that just completely preoccupied the people of Israel. I mean, just think about this, for instance. Um, You know how I was saying in in Sunday school last week that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. 
And then when the Bible says this, that it's even referring most particularly to the Old Testament. Well, I just happened to be spending some time in Exodus during the past couple of weeks. And if you've ever uh, tried reading through Exodus, then you probably know that Moses spends a good amount of time in that book describing the tabernacle. It's about 10 chapters in total, actually, describing either the construction of the tabernacle or its furniture or the clothing of the priests who serve in the tabernacle. It's actually 11 chapters if you uh, include Exodus 40, where Moses describes the erection of the tabernacle. So roughly a quarter of the book of Exodus deals with this subject. In fact, Moses likes to talk about the tabernacle so much that he talks about it twice. He goes into detail about how God told him to build a tabernacle, and then he goes into detail again describing how the tabernacle was built just exactly like that. And do you know at least one application that you should take away from that as a New Testament saint? It's that God really cares about His dwelling place. Like when you're motoring through that section of Exodus, thinking to yourself, why do I need to know this? How does this apply to me today? At least one thought that should enter your mind is that God really cares about His dwelling place. He cares about it enough to spend 10 chapters describing the precise specifications for the construction of this structure. The tabernacle and the temple after it, these were fundamentally important concepts to the Old Testament Jew. In fact, they were quite literally at the center of Old Testament worship. Everything revolved around the temple. Now, I imagine you may think to yourself, but what does this have to do with me? After all, we don't go up to the temple to worship today. What does this have to do with me as a New Testament believer? And the truth is that this has everything to do with you. I would even go so far as to say that this notion of temple, of the dwelling place of God, that it should be more important to you as a New Testament believer than even to a believer in the Old Testament. You see, a, a monumental shift in this concept takes place in the New Testament. Jesus alludes to it in John 4 as he talks to a Samaritan woman at the foot of Mount Gerizim. The woman, the woman wants to know who's right. Is it the Samaritans who worshipped there at Mount Gerizim or is it the Jews who went up to Jerusalem to worship? And Jesus answers her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. But the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Essentially, He gives the woman two answers. First, He says, yes, the Jews are right. Jerusalem is the place where one ought to go for worship currently. But then second, he says, but this is changing. A time is soon coming when one will go neither to this mountain nor to Jerusalem to worship. And when does that shift take place? There are a couple of candidates for the exact moment. It either occurs in John 20, when the resurrected Christ breathes on the disciples and declares, receive the Holy Spirit, or it occurs at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the appearance of tongues of fire. Whichever is the case, the point is that shortly after the resurrection, the Spirit who once dwelled with the people of Israel begins to dwell in them. You remember that part of John 14 earlier this morning, don't you? Jesus tells the disciples that they know the Spirit because He has dwelled with them and will be in them. Well, that starts happening shortly after the resurrection. At that time, the dwelling place of God shifts. It is now understood that God no longer uniquely dwells in a temple of stone built by human hands, but in the hearts and minds of His people. He dwells in the church. The church becomes the temple of God. So why should this matter to you? Let me show you. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2. You don't have to turn there with me. You can if you'd like. You can turn there, Leviticus 10, 1 through 2, or you can just listen along. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2 says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. 2 Samuel 6, 6 through 7. Again, you can turn there with me if you like. 2 Samuel 6, 6 through 7. It says, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, and the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. One more, 2 Chronicles 26, 16 through 21. Referring to King Uzziah, it says, But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who are men of valor. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked to him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly, and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death, and being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Are you starting to see a pattern here? God cares about his temple. He does not take lightly to those who profane his house. This is what Paul is reminding the Corinthians here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. He's watching these Corinthians fracture God's temple with their rivalries. He's watching them profane his temple with their worldly philosophies and sin. And he's asking them, don't you know who you're messing with? Don't you realize who lives here? Don't you know what he's going to do to you if you persist in this behavior? How is the church acting in a merely human way when they say among themselves, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos? Listen, it's quite simple. They're acting as if they've forgotten that they're the temple of God. They're acting as if there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit, or at least that they don't think they're indwelt by this Spirit. They're acting as if they are strictly natural men and women. I think the Scripture indicates that there are at least a couple of potential consequences for this mistake. You see, one consequence a little later in this letter, when Paul says that some of the Corinthians are sick, and some God has even killed for the way they're celebrating the Lord's table together. Like, guys, that's Old Testament levels of discipline there. That's Nadab and Abihu offering strange fire before the Lord. That's Uzzah touching the Ark of the Covenant. It's, that's Uzziah offering incense in the temple. Again, God cares about his temple, and so don't think it's simply beyond the pale for God to respond to rivalries by actually afflicting a church in one way or another in order to discipline them and correct their sin. That may not always be in the sense of physical sickness, like what we see in 1 Corinthians 11, but I think it's definitely within the range of possibilities for a church to experience one form of trial or another as a consequence to their competitive spirit. The second consequence, I think, is outlined in James. I alluded to this form of discipline earlier this morning. In James 1, James notes that if anyone asks or anyone lacks wisdom, they should ask God before noting that they should ask in faith without doubting. And again, the meaning there is that they need to ask with a singular commitment to God. They can't have one eye on God and one eye on some idol since that will render them unable to receive the wisdom of God. In James 4, James also notes that God will not hear his people's prayers if they come to him asking him to fulfill their idols. Again, God isn't going to tolerate idolatry in his people, his people whom he has set aside for worship. 
just like he disciplines the people of Israel in the Old Testament because they have been set apart to serve him exclusively, so also you can expect that he will discipline the church in the same way. Take those two concepts and transport them over to what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, and I think it's probably reasonable to conclude that when you come asking God for growth and spiritual understanding, but you come asking for the sake of setting yourself apart, when you come asking for the sake of proving yourself superior to your brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not going to happen. God isn't going to answer those kinds of prayers. Do you understand here? You, you can want the right thing for the wrong reasons. And God knows the difference. He can understand the difference between wanting to know the truth so that you can better use that knowledge to serve the Lord and wanting to know it so that you can try to impress others with what you know. And guys, God will bless the one who comes seeking Him understanding for the first reason. He's probably going to frustrate the one who comes seeking Him for the second. This is partly what Paul is warning the Corinthians about in this section, is it not? He's telling them, you have the Spirit of God. The problem is you're not acting like it. You have these rivalries taking place, and because of that, I can't teach you. We interpret spiritual truths. Those who are spiritual, the problem is that you're not spiritual. Therefore, I think it's at least plausible that part of the warning that Paul is trying to communicate here is that while they have the Spirit, the fact is, if they act in a way that grieves the Spirit, they're not going to receive His help in understanding, but his discipline. This seems to be part of what Paul is intending to communicate in a very similar sort of passage over in Ephesians. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to be unified and of the same mind so that through the work of the Spirit they might come to know the length and breadth and height and depth and the, uh, the love of Christ. And as a part of that exhortation, he tells them, Ephesians 4, 29-30, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He identifies this divisive speech that can at times occur in the church, and he exhorts them to put it away while noting that this exact kind of speech carries the potential to grieve the Spirit of God. Again, this is all in the context of him wanting the Ephesians to grow in their knowledge of Christ. So again, I think this is part of Paul's intent here, to, to warn the Corinthians that if they continue in these rivalries, then they can't expect to grow in their understanding of God since they're grieving the very Spirit who provides them with that instruction. In fact, if you look here, Paul continues this exhortation in verse 18. By saying, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. He's clearly warning them, right? God frustrates the understanding of those who boast in their wisdom. That's been his point since all the way back in chapter 1. God responds to the proud in this world by hiding the knowledge of the gospel from them, by saving in a way that seems contrary to their understanding. Is it not therefore reasonable to conclude that he will do the same with his church when they boast in their great understanding, that he will hide his face and hide his wisdom from them as a means of correcting their arrogance and restoring order in his body? Friends, it's a terrible mistake to think that you can use your so-called knowledge to, to divide the temple of God and emerge unscathed. And it's most especially a mistake to think that the Spirit of God is going to actually help you grow in your understanding under these circumstances. There's one more reason why a competitive spirit both indicates and predicts a merely human church. And it's related to the reason that we've already been talking about this morning. You see it in verses 21 through 23. Paul says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. You know what the competitive church forgets? They forget the fact that the Spirit has distributed many gifts to the body, even through various types of teachers, 
and that all of these are given for the mutual edification of the saints. This is our fourth point, by the way. A competitive spirit forgets who belongs to the church. It not only forgets to whom the church belongs, it also forgets who belongs to the church. Going back to this passage that I just mentioned from Ephesians 4, where Paul pleads with the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace so that they might grow and know what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. Paul says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Do you hear this? Paul is saying that there have been these various leaders given to the body of Christ, each of which have a different role, but each of whom equip the church so that the body collectively might speak the truth to one another in love. It's the same point that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 3 when he says that he planted and Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And it's the same point that Paul is going to make later on in chapter 12 when he talks about how these various gifts have been given to the body for the mutual edification and growth of the body, how the eye cannot therefore say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You know, Paul was an apostle, and I think it's fair to say an evangelist. That means that he was given one set of gifts. He was a planter. Apollos was a waterer. He was more of what you might think of as a shepherd teacher. He continued the work that Paul had started. They may have had different roles. They may have played different positions, but that didn't mean that they weren't still on the same team. If you remember, I said back in chapter 1 that it would seem that at least part of these rivalries may be rooted in the various gifts that have been given to the church. Uh, some see one set of gifts associated with a guy like Paul, another with Apollos. They miss, this may even be what this Christ camp is all about. They see these gifts as somehow uniquely tied to Jesus. I think this is a good chance that this is even why Paul was intentional about not baptizing people, because he didn't want them thinking that they received these gifts from him. Well, listen, do you know what the church is forgetting as they begin competing with each other in light of these gifts, and as they begin competing with each other in light of this knowledge that they think that they're receiving from the Spirit, they're forgetting again, to quote Paul from Ephesians 4, 4 through 7, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Again, they're acting like a merely human church in the sense that they're forgetting that there's only one Spirit who's working through all these different gifts and through all these different men and for the growth of the same body. So do you know what this means? Do you know what's happening when a church begins competing with each other? It means that they're willingly cutting themselves off from the Spirit's work in the other members of the church. For the eye to say to the hand, I have no need of you. Listen, it doesn't improve the eye in any way. It just means it can't grab things now. It's utter foolishness. And you know what's going to happen in the body? As members of the body begin depriving themselves of the Spirit's work in these other members, I think you see the answer over in Ephesians 4 once again. I don't know if you caught it, but did you see what the outcome was when these Various leaders equip the saints to speak the truth in love. Paul observes that this equipping process occurs, quote, so that we might no longer uh, be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says that this process takes place, quote, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Are, are you catching this? Listen, is a church going to be more susceptible to error or less susceptible when they divide? 
are they going to be more or less susceptible to worldly thinking? The answer is more susceptible, obviously, right? And this means that they're not going to grow into maturity and they will not be filled with the knowledge of Christ. This is Paul's problem over in 1 Corinthians. By breaking into rivalries, they have not only demonstrated their spiritual immaturity, but the Corinthians are also demonstrating, they're proving their inability to become mature. This is why he exhorts them here, verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Before continuing, verse 21, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Christ has already given them everything necessary for their spiritual growth. And unfortunately, by dividing themselves up, they're not making full use of those resources. They need to stop this mine versus yours mindset and instead realize that it's all theirs, both Paul and Apollos, Cephas and Christ. Again, it's ironic. The Corinthians are boasting in their maturity. But the fact of the matter is, the more they boast, the more they prove themselves immature. And so long as they continue to act this way, they're only going to manage to deprive themselves of the very resources that will actually make them wise in Christ. So do you want to be wise, Christian? Do you want to be mature? Paul shows you right here, and it's not an arrogant boasting. It's not by showing off. It's not by trying to prove yourselves superior to your brothers and sisters sitting next to you. Such boasting is not only going to grieve the Spirit of God and quite possibly lead you into the, the disciplinary correction of God, but it's actually going to deprive you of the very resources the Spirit has provided for your growth. Brothers and sisters, we have at our disposal a resource of unfathomable, unfathomable wisdom and even power. He's a helper so significant that on the evening of His death, Jesus comforted His disciples with the promise of His coming. He's there at our side. In fact, He's even closer than this. He's in us. He dwells among us. Let us not despise his help with foolish boasting. Instead, let us heed Paul's counsel and work together to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray.